Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Have you ever had such a great conversation that you simply had to have more time? Silly question, I know we've all had that. But one of mine recently was with my guest, Lori Gottlieb, during her superb interview for episode 104 about eight weeks ago. After we spoke, I said, there's so much more I'd like to ask you. Fortunately, she was game. So later that same afternoon, we recorded this episode. As you'll hear, she shares about how she and her colleague, Guy Winch, created their stellar podcast, Dear Therapists, as well as more about her well-cultivated thoughts on therapy itself. And a brief refresher on Lori. She has a thriving psychotherapy practice in Los Angeles. She's authored multiple books, including Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which has sold over 1 million copies. In addition, her TED Talk is magnificent and has millions of views. And she has a TV show in the works. I can't say enough about Lori, and I hope you'll listen to both episodes. You will see why she has been such an international sensation. So listen in on a bit more from a psychotherapy thought leader, Lori Gottlieb, on this PS edition. And as you'll hear, we go right into the middle of the conversation. So one of the things I love about what you said earlier in terms of choosing your audience is being really discerning when choosing our friends, of course, our romantic partners, our therapists is a big deal. And just recalling back in graduate school, being told that if you're going to consider a co-facilitator for a thing in therapy, be as conscientious in selecting that person as you would perhaps a spouse. And here you are with Guy Winch, a great psychologist and author, a TED speaker himself, who's got incredible clout. And the two of you are an incredible union. I wonder what went into the selection process when it came to choosing Guy as your podcast partner. So when I was asked to do this podcast, I was asked to do it by myself. and. I thought, well, I don't want to represent all therapists. I think it's important to have other perspectives. And so I was thinking, well, who could I have on here? And I was at first thinking maybe I wouldn't even have another therapist. Maybe it would be me and another person that I really click with. And maybe we could be talking about these issues. And then I was at a conference and I was put on a panel with Guy Winch. <laughs> And it was a panel of some other therapists as well. And Guy and I, just all of our answers, we had never met. We just were on stage together. And everything he said resonated so strongly with me. And everything I said resonated so strongly with him. And we were riffing off of each other. And the other therapists gave sort of nice answers. But Guy and I, <laughs> we both are very not precious about ourselves in terms of how we present professionally, meaning we're professional, but we're very human. And Guy had done stand-up early on in his life. Oh. And I come from a media background. 
And we were just ourselves presenting our ideas. And it was just such incredible chemistry between us. And as it happened, my TED Talk, so I was about to do a TED Talk and it was due in like a week. (laughs) And I'm at this conference and I'm trying to write my TED Talk. And Guy, of course, had done a couple of TED Talks at that point. And so I said to him, can you look over my TED Talk right after the event? So he said, sure. So we got in a room together and he looks over my TED talk and I start going over my talk with him. And then I start telling him about this podcast. And then I randomly say to him, hey, I know we've only known each other an hour, but do you want to be my co-host on this podcast? (laughs) And he laughs and I said, I know it's really, I'm, I'm not kidding. Oh my God. Just a spectacular intuitive moment like this has to happen. Yes. And it's really funny because then it's sort of like a shotgun wedding. You know, you're sort of like, wait a minute, what did I just do? <laughs> like, I don't even know this. I don't even know how we would work together. I've never seen him do a session. You know, the people that I would be considering would be people that I know their work. I know how they work. And I didn't, I knew guys work, but I didn't know what he's like when he's dealing with someone in a session. So what's interesting about the podcast is that it's not as though we discussed the cases beforehand. Someone writes in a letter and one of us picks the letter and reads the letter and we're hearing it for the first time right there on the podcast. The person comes on, we do a session with them. And then at the end, Guy and I right there on the spot, give them advice like homework that they have to complete within one week. So that people can see, okay, we learned a lot during this session, but how do we apply it? It's what I was talking about earlier about insight is the booby prize of therapy. What do we do with it afterwards? So we want to make sure that the session sticks. Yes. So we give them the homework and then they have one week to complete it and they come back and tell us how it went so that we can make some kind of shift with them. And hopefully they'll carry that forward. And in fact, we do year long follow-ups with people from previous seasons so we can hear how it worked long-term. But the interesting part is that Guy and I are literally, it's like doing improv, which therapy is anyway. For sure. But you don't have to worry about what the other person's going to say or where they're going. And what I found about working with Guy is that often he will say something and I'm thinking, what is he doing? I was just on this track and now he's over there and what just happened? But I trust because we've worked together enough now that wherever he's going is the same place I was going. He's just getting there a different way. So we very much trust that whatever cockamamie thing we think the other person is doing in that moment, that there's intention and that we have the same goal. And what's nice too about working with another therapist is that sometimes you'll see that you are trying to get somewhere and it's not working. You're not getting to where you need to be with that person. And so the other person could kind of come in and move in a different place and then you could come back and that lets you go back to the place you wanted to be. It's really a dance. And you have to have a good dance partner. And I could not think of a better dance partner than Guy Winch. He's also his accent, I just want to say, which sounds <laughs> which yeah. sounds like a funny thing to say. He has a British accent. He sounds incredibly calming. And we have a different energy. So you can hear his energy is different from my energy. And I think that works really well for the people who come on the podcast. They get two very, very different people, different tone of voice, different way of getting to a place. Different culture, yeah. Different culture. He has more of an international background and it's really been a growth experience, I think, for both of us because I learned so much from Guy by watching him do what he does 
And he has said to me that he has learned a lot from me by watching what I do. And he's even said so many times, he said, I'll be in session and I'll be stuck. And I'll think, what would Lori say right now? (laughs) And it's so funny because I've done the same thing where I think if I were on the podcast with Guy right now, what is the thing he would do in this moment? We're very lucky that it worked out given that we were complete strangers doing something that feels so incredibly intimate, which is going into people's lives in these very personal ways and in these very deep ways. And you have to trust your partner in this. And I trust Guy completely. There are so many funny things about the story. My preconceived notion was, oh, for sure, she vetted him. And over a long period of time, she's very conscientious. And I don't know if the word choiceful is actually a word, but I hear it used. But you know what I'm driving at here. And here you are putting your professional reputation on the line in a very exposed manner. And you put one hour of just real intuition into the selection process. And lo and behold, the proof is in the pudding. I listen to that podcast. I get smarter. I imagine everyone does. I find myself asking, what would Lori do? I know Guy does. You've internalized each other. You've influenced each other. You're both better for having known each other. This is such a virtuous cycle in that all stakeholders, whether it's you and Guy or the listeners in general, be they therapists or clients or both. I mean, just what a gift the two of you have created and how funny and counterintuitive this whole process was. Well, we kind of make fun of each other too. Guy's big thing, and you'll hear it on the podcast, he's very much about validating the experience. And I'm like, validate, schmalidate. Can we get into this right now? You know, I don't say that, but there are things about me where he's like, yeah, no, we're going to, that's Lori doing her thing. I'm going to go over here. It's almost like when you have different adults, when you're a child who might influence you and might be models for you, I think it's nice for kids to see lots of different adults and lots of different styles. Often couples will come to me and they differ on their parenting style. And I say, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And they think it's a problem. And I say, no, this is really good. You don't have to be the exact same people. You have to agree on certain values and sort of big picture items. But in terms of how you actually interact, it's good for your child to see that this parent does this and this parent does this. Now, your rules are probably the same, but how you go about these interactions will be different. And that's great. They get to see two different kinds of people. And that's exactly what you and Guy are doing. You said you trust that he will get there. And if two parents both have the same goal, which is it's like not like either one of their goals is going to violate the other, but they have different ways of expressing the ways to getting there. I think, again, all stakeholders benefit because what does the child see? Oh, I can be cognitively flexible and still get there. Yes, yes. And it also reminds me of how solitary being a therapist is because... My goodness. When we're in the room, we are so, so focused on that person sitting on the couch, but we don't have colleagues sitting in the room with us. We have consultation groups where we can tell what happened, but that's our interpretation of what happened. Somebody didn't see it. Guy can see things happening in the moment. I can see things happening in the moment when Guy is working with somebody. And I think that's so valuable. I have grown so much as a therapist by working with another therapist in real time. And by the way, publicly. (laughs) Very publicly. So that we get feedback from other therapists, which is really nice. We love it when other therapists send us something and say, oh, that thing that you did there was really helpful. Or what about that moment? What if you had gone here? And we think, yeah, that's a great idea. And we'll bring that into a different session. 
our intern on the podcast right now is a graduate student who is becoming a therapist. And we're actually going to do some sessions with him to get his sort of like case consultation with him on the episodes that we've taped so that you can hear the perspective of somebody who's training and listening to these and learning and has questions for us. And I think, again, we're just trying to make therapy accessible and the process of growth and change accessible to people. And however they learn it is great for us. So I like letting people behind the curtain. I don't think we should be wizards with these secrets behind the scenes. I think things should be incredibly transparent. And that's what I'm trying to do in all of my work is to make all of this very understandable, accessible, and transparent. Well, Lori, that's wonderful. And I think about Ra Shomon and that great film by Akira Kurosawa, where several people see the same event and see it differently through their testimonies. And I think that you and Guy are mutually edifying. And I'm so envious of your graduate student who gets to be the beneficiary of being with you, learning from you, and also learning this technique of not being solipsistic alone as we are trying to become better at what we do. One of the things that keeps kind of hitting me about you is your willingness to be so transparent out there in a field where we have been told about boundaries. And I think it's to the benefit of all of your listeners and readers that you show up with your personhood humanistically. And you do that in such a beautiful manner. You role model vulnerability. You role model your quest to learn more and slog it out, almost like Rocky Balboa in a workout. You're just going for it, which I resonate with so much as a therapist and as a person in life. I'm wondering what's it been like for you to be so out there, so transparent, so seen for all of so much of your life that other people might not be exposing because they might not have a podcast or a book or a format the way you do. How's it been for you? Well, I think that the reason that I do it is that one of the obstacles to change is that people think that everybody else does it seamlessly and that something is wrong with them if they're having trouble, if they're stuck, if they keep repeating patterns, if they can't let go of something from the past that's still sitting there and influencing all of their behaviors and choices. And I think that change is really hard. And in the book, I talk about how change and loss travel together and how there are all of these stages of change. And it's not like people say, just do it and I'm going to change. Right. You know, I talked about the model of change that has those steps of pre-contemplation where you don't even know that you're thinking about making a change and then contemplation where you are thinking about it, but you're not ready to do anything. And then preparation where you're preparing to make the change, but you're not there yet. And then action is where you actually make the change. And people think that is the last step. It is not. That is the beginning of the change. The next step is maintenance. And maintenance is how do you maintain the change? And one of the biggest misconceptions about maintenance is that it's this upward trajectory. Like you've made the change and you're just going to keep going, keep going, keep going. But no, you're going to slip back. It's like shoots and ladders. It's like, you know, the game. You're going to slip back. That is built into maintenance. That does not mean that you failed. It means that you are building up your ability to maintain the change. So you do the change, you slip back. You see that with Charlotte in the book with her drinking and also with the guys like going after the unavailable men. And you see her keep going back, but less so, less frequently. And then there are certain triggers and she's aware of them. 
And then she gets on this path where she's really maintaining, but she might still slip back sometimes. That's okay. And so when you ask about my being out there, I wanted to show that I go through that process too. And I think that if people can get rid of the shame that they have around whatever it is that is ailing them, that I think that they have so much more potential to make those changes. And so if they think they're going to therapists who are so self-actualized and don't struggle in life or haven't struggled in life, and by the way, if you're human, you have struggled in life in some way, shape or form, it might look different, but you have, I think the process is harder. So I just want people to know that we are all in this together, that yes, we are trained to help you. No, the sessions are not about us or our personal lives. So we do have boundaries. I talk about self-disclosure in the book and how we make those assessments about what to share and why. And when we do, it needs to be very intentional for the benefit of the client. And you have to know what that benefit is before you say what you're about to say. And don't say it if you don't know the answer to that question. But I think that Therapist being human is one of the best things that can happen to the field. And by that, I don't mean that we were talking about therapists and media. We're making a a TV series of this book. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I always have said is that I feel like therapists have been portrayed in the media as either sort of like the blank slate, which we are not, or they've been sort of like the very competent person at work, but the hot mess outside of work, which is not accurate either. We're just humans, fellow travelers, as we talked about. And I think that that really helps the field for people to know I'm going to a real person. If you're going to be in a field that is all about human relationships and you can't be human, there's something wrong with that. Could not agree more. And I've made a very conscientious choice. And that is I do reveal appropriately my own struggles Not overwhelmingly, I don't make them the crux of my work on the podcast, but I have shared certain struggles that I've been through. And I'm so glad that you're doing this. I also really do want people to know that kind of like the hair club for men guy, you know, I, I'm not just a therapist. I also have received my own treatment and it's made all the difference in my life. So I really want to model that as well. And I'm so glad you're doing that and judiciously, conscientiously providing really healthful self-disclosures when appropriate. I think it's great. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that I have not in the therapy room talked about my personal life. Mm. And in the book, which many people have read, and I didn't know, by the way, how many people would going to read it, which is why I was so raw and unfiltered in the book. I remember, you know, everyone said the story in the book is that I was supposed to be writing a book about happiness. I did not want to write a book about happiness because I think happiness is sort of beside the point. (laughs) And I don't mean that we shouldn't want to have joy in our lives. What I mean is that happiness as the goal in and of itself is often a recipe for disaster. Happiness is a byproduct of living our lives in a fulfilling way is I think what we're all seeking. And that's a healthy way of looking at happiness. So I I canceled the happiness book and I said, I want to write this book. I want to just bring people into the experience of what I have the privilege of seeing every week and help them see their lives reflected in these patients. And everyone said, oh, no one's going to read that. No one's going to read a book about people talking in a room. No one's going to do that. And so I said, great, because for the three people who read it, I get to write the book that (laughs) I want to write. And now, of course, it's sold like well over a million copies and lots of people have read it. And I remember when I turned it into my publisher and again, they had thought, oh, no one's going to read this. 
And they were like, oh my gosh, I laughed. I cried. I gave it to five people here, five people there. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, maybe more people are going to read this. Maybe I should (laughs) clean myself up a little bit because I still have time. The book isn't, you know, in its final form yet. But I didn't clean myself up. And I am sure that the reason that the book resonates so strongly is because I did not clean myself up because I was as real as my patients are. And I think that that was so important. So I have not in the therapy room talked about these things. I don't do that as a rule. There are times when maybe here or there, something might come out, maybe about my child or being a parent or something like that. But the stuff that's in the book, I don't talk about. So when my patients, when I came back from book tour, so I I didn't tell people I was going on book tour. I said, I'm going to be out of the office on such and such dates and I'll be back and here's who's on call for me. And then when I came back, of course, the book blew up immediately and was everywhere. My patients would walk in one after the other onto the couch and they'd sit down and they'd say, so I read your book (laughs) and I had not prepared for that. And what I found was that they were not so interested in my life. They were interested in all of the things about like that time when I asked Wendell if he likes me or my experience as a patient, Mm. all of the relatable aspects of being in therapy. And they would do it in a kind of an indirect way. Like, you know, that time when you asked your therapist if he liked you, I really love that part. It's like, do you have a question? There's a question there. And also just the ways that they saw themselves in the different patients where we could deepen our work together now, because now they felt like, oh, there's something I haven't been telling you that I want to talk to you about that I was ashamed to talk about. But now that I've seen all your other patients talk about it, I feel like I could talk about it too. So it was less about, let's talk about what you talked about in your therapy and more, let's talk about the things I haven't been talking about that I now want to talk about with you in our therapy. Totally. And one of the things I love about the way you work and the way any really good therapist works is by listening to what's not being said. And you're very good at that, as illustrated in the book. And I got the feeling as I was reading the book, oh, yes, I would definitely refer people to you. There's just no question that you're good at what you do and it comes through in the book. And so glad to have you as a colleague. Oh, well, likewise. Absolutely. Has there been a book that has been particularly dear to you that has informed the way you live your life? Perhaps a book that you return to from time to time? So many. If you could see, there's just books packed around my house. I loved Olive Kitteridge and the sequel and anything by this author, Lucy Barton. I love novels that, I mean, I think the best novels are novels that really reveal a psychological truth that we haven't been able to articulate. Yes. And there it is on the page. And just with this beautiful language, I don't mean fluffy language. I mean, just plain language that kind of says the thing that you've been feeling, but you've never had words for the experience. And I have experienced that too. So like when you're on that page and you take in a breath, like, yes, yes, I know that I felt that. And it goes Um, back to our earlier conversation of naming how important it is to have a name or a word. That's wonderful. So Kitteridge. Well, Kitteridge talks a lot about, um, especially the sequel. I forget what the sequel is called to Olive Kitteridge. Something like maybe Olive Again. Obviously, it's called Olive Again. It's all about her regret what she wishes she had done differently and her sort of coming to terms with what she can change and what she can't change. And how do we make peace with that? And I think that's so universal at any age. And so you may not be Olive Kitteridge, you may not be that character, 
but wow. And the kind of reckoning that she has with herself around who she was as a parent, as a partner, as a community member, who she was as a child and and how that affected her as an adult. All of these ways that we look at our lives and know that we don't get a redo. And so how do we manage that? And how do we Mm. grow from that? And I would say any good novel will ask those big questions and have you ask them of yourself. So I think reading and writing as a therapist are so helpful. I mean, I have a career as a writer and that was my career before I was a therapist. And I think that it informs my work every day, not just what we were talking about earlier about helping people edit their stories, but also because I think that it helps you to articulate something for the client, to help them articulate something. The way that you struggle as a writer to articulate something, you could tell they're struggling to articulate something and you can use the tools that you use as a reader and as a writer to help them form their own way of making sense of and describing their experience. So I think they go very hand in hand. You know, I'm thinking about how much pain a child experiences when they're trying to articulate something that they can't. And you can see them scrunching and grimacing in a way that we adults experience as well, just more psychically. So the ability to write is so crucial. The willingness to read a brilliant, psychologically minded novel can be so helpful to us to help us give words to the previously unnameable. That idea, we need to name it to tame it. What we can't feel, we can't heal. All those things really come about through reading. And I'm so grateful to these authors who've exposed themselves perhaps even more than they would have in the doctor's office when they've had to disrobe by sharing with us their intimately held soulful truths or quests or longings. It's so helpful to be in the company of great books. Well, I should say that I wrote a piece for the New York Times about bibliotherapy, which is Mm, where I recommend books to my clients all the time. And I think it's really important because there's something that happens when you're sitting face to face with somebody. And then there's something that happens when you say, I think this might resonate with you. Take a look at this if you get a chance. And and they'll read that and say, I wish I read that 10 years ago, or it's so relevant to what we're talking about. It's almost like, you know, I love independent bookstores because when you go in an independent bookstore and if they know you, they'll say, you should read this book. And you're like, I'm not sure I would like that book. And they're like, no, 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 just trust me, read this book. I generally find that they're right. That's a book that I might not have selected for myself. And I'm so glad that they said, you should read this. I feel like sometimes I'm like a librarian or a bookseller where I, you know, I'm recommending things. I'm curating book lists for people. I don't do it all the time, but certainly it comes up a lot. And so in my piece in, in the New York Times, I talk about when and how and why I do that. And I think there's no one way to do therapy. I bring in a lot of different resources because I just think you have to come in from a lot of different angles. And again, that goes back to change and that thing about how even the reason that change is so hard is because we lose the familiar. And even if the familiar is unpleasant because we want to change it, we're still losing the devil we know. We're losing our sense of comfort. And so anytime you make a change, you have to go into this place of uncertainty. And humans as a rule don't do well with uncertainty Mm -hmm. because we want control. And uncertainty is the opposite of control. 
even if it's a really positive change, like I'm going to get out of this relationship that has not been working for 10 years, or I'm going to do this great new job that I've been wanting. I've been wanting this job forever, but I'm so scared. Oh, maybe I shouldn't take it. It's so far away, the commute, right? Totally. (laughs) It's all the reasons that we get afraid of making change. And again, changes that we know are good for us, changes that we know will lead to our growth. We have to let go of the familiar, which is why like Charlotte in the book, she keeps going after the same kinds of guys, even though she knows that it's going to be the same story at the end, that it's going to have the same ending because it's familiar to her. She goes on a date with someone who seems like he's the kind of person that she keeps saying, I can never meet. And then there he is right there. And he likes her and he wants to go on a second date with her. She's like, yeah, no chemistry. (laughs) right? And and you see in the book, you see her evolve around this. And then she finally realizes, wait a minute, I am terrified of something that going out of my comfort zone and being with someone who actually will see me, being with someone who was actually available to me. I don't know how to do that. I know how to do the thing where I get hurt, but I don't know how to do the thing where I don't get hurt. And there's so much loss venturing into the unknown, including not satisfying that repetition compulsion of actually having that healing experience with the alcoholic father. By not marrying yes. the alcoholic man, so to speak, or the yes, it's, person. Have, it, suddenly he, he was unavailable, but, but I made him available. <laughs> or well, well that's available. what in the book I talk about repetition compulsion with Charlotte, right. because there's this idea that, first of all, I think we don't recognize that we're choosing someone exactly like the person who hurt us. The person kind of looks different. And then you start to get to know them. And it's like, oh, wow, he does have a <laughs> problem. What do you know? Because you have radar. Totally. For the type of person who hurt you in childhood because it's familiar. That was your experience of nurturing. And it didn't feel very nurturing, but that was your experience of it. And so it's kind of like, oh, you look familiar. Come closer. Yeah. And then the person comes closer and it's like, oh, wait a minute. And then you're exactly who I need to be away from. But unconsciously, you're exactly the person that I'm going to win this time. Right. So this time, I'm going to win. This time, you're going to treat me the way that I wanted to be treated. This time, I'm going to fix you. And then I will have fixed my childhood. And of course, it never works that way. But that's the idea behind repetition compulsion is I'm going to keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, and I'm going to master it. And I'm going to win this time. And and when people get rid of that fantasy and they start doing the grief work, because what you need to do instead is go into the grief work. You need to do the grieving of the loss that you will never have the thing that you wanted to have. I said to Charlotte at one point, you're going to have to let go of the fantasy that you can have a different childhood in order to have the kind of adulthood that you want to have. And I think that piece that you just named is so central to so many of our broken hearts, so many of our pains and what causes us when unexamined just repeat, and as you articulated it so well, to re-engage that repetition compulsion. And then, of course, the grieving part of recognizing that underneath that compulsion to repeat ourselves, that we will not be gratified in this lifetime. We will not have that experience that we want so badly that our souls long for. Speaking of longing, before we go, what are some of the books that you do give out most frequently? Because I have a feeling my listeners want to know. Yeah, unfortunately, it's really tailored toward the person. And because I, there are so many books that I recommend. So if someone's dealing with, you know, there's certain nonfiction books. I was talking about novels before. And those sure. are very much about what I think will resonate with that person. Sometimes I will give out nonfiction if they need to learn something about 
let's say it's something about a mood disorder or personality disorder or something like that, I would give them a book and they will say, oh, there's a name for this. Right, exactly. (laughs) This is what it is, right? I was thinking about just now a client that I had who had a very, very difficult family and sibling who was very abusive to her and educated had just come out. And there were so many parallels between those two families. And I told her she should re- actually had a galley of it. <laughs> it wasn't even out yet. I, I had a galley of it and I just, it was in my office and I just handed it to her. And wow. Said, that's amazing. And that was a game changer for her because this was one of these things where none of her friends could relate. She couldn't tell people about it. She felt because she felt like no one will understand. It felt so specific to her. And then to read someone else's experience of it was just opened up this whole new world for her. So I really recommend books just in the moment. It's not like I'm sitting there every session giving people a book to read. Right. It's just, I happen to really feel like however your experience is articulated and however it might speak to you, I'm either going to do that in the room or I'll do that with outside resources, whatever. Well, I'm going to share with you one of my all-time faves, and that would be The Middle Passage by James Hollis, a Jungian analyst who writes about kind of this midlife, this kind of going through. It's only 100 pages, but I describe it as having a cup of tea with Yoda. It's like talking with the world's smartest person about what does this thing mean? And it's very dense, but very readable at the same time. I, like you, tailor my bibliotherapy based upon what the person needs. So there is no one size fits all with me either. And I draw from a gazillion books. I listen to approximately three books a week and I couldn't be a bigger geek when it comes to this. So it goes the other way too. So sometimes a client will come in and they'll say, I read this book and it was life-changing for me. I will often read that book. Totally. Me too. Because Ah. I want to be able to talk about it with them and I want to be able to understand exactly what it was or they'll come in and they'll read a paragraph from it and then I want the context. So I'll read more of it. I think it's really helpful. I think that the relationship that we have with our clients is, again, it's so human. And there are these Mm. rules from grad school about what you can and can't do. There are certain rules that are very clear about what you can and can't do. And of course, we follow those. And they're good. Um, They're good rules. There's their great rules. They're important rules. But And when I hear stories, by the way, sometimes people come to me and they'll tell me stories. I think that the people who cross the boundaries that you should never cross tend to be inexperienced therapists, Mm -hmm. that they think they're joining with their client. It's like the young mom who wants to be really cool. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I want to be the cool mom. So we're just going to eat junk food and have no rules in our house. I'm just going to be their friend, not their parent. I'm going to be their friend, not their parent. I think sometimes that inexperienced therapists feel some pressure to be liked by their clients. And you can't force that. You either are going to click with a client or you're not going to click with a client. And it's okay if you don't. There have been clients that just don't click with you. You know, me. (laughs) That's fine. I want to help them get to someone that they do click with. Absolutely. It's incumbent upon us to be authentic in that way and to recognize that the literature predicts it's the quality of the two people, the match of the two people in the room that predicts a good outcome. And we can't force that. And you don't have to be similar. That is the one thing. Big thing. Such a revelation to me. So in the book, I talk about how Charlotte seemed like me 20 years ago. 
in certain ways, not in the specifics like I did. Uh, I understood. Not, not you, you were dialed I, was, back, I was, didn't have a drinking problem. I, 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 I right. Inappropriate guys in that one. I do but, remember. <laughs> but I mean, just in terms of some of the parental stuff and her really wanting a mother figure in me and my really wanting a mother figure in someone at that age as well, just so many similarities. And I think that makes it harder in some ways because you have to make sure that your stuff doesn't bleed into the room in a way that you lose her stuff. But what I found is that I think so when we were training, people were like, oh, I love that. I just got to sign this person in. I love them because they're so like me. And I think, uh oh, <laughs> now I think that, you know, I think it's better that you have a wide range of people. You learn so much more and you're able to help all kinds of people. What a great insight. And uh, I love being a Lori Gottlieb friend and geek. Just way too much fun with you to talk shop and about really meaningful things. Oh, well, likewise. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 